0: reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado.
1: Love a good deal? Sail into the season at Banana Republic Factory's Mega Labor Day Sale. Entire store 50 to 70% off. Dresses from $19.99. Polos from $16.99. Find your nearest store or shop online only at Banana Republic Factory. You are listening to On the Daily, the Rotoviz Daily Fantasy Sports Podcast, powered by Rotoviz
2: Radio. Hello everyone. Welcome to the March fifteenth, 2019 NASCAR edition of On the Daily. I'm Matt Friedman of the Action Network. In Rotoviz, I'm joined by Dr. Nick Giffen, a PhD in mathematics, a three-time qualifier for the DraftKings NASCAR main event, and one of the best NASCAR DFS players in the world. You can follow him on Twitter at Rotodoc. Nick, how's it going?
0: Hey, Matt, I am doing uh, awesome. It is uh, Auto Club Speedway this weekend, so, um, you know, we were talking a little bit before we went live, and uh, it's going to be the fourth aero package, but kind of the fifth different situation, so we'll dive into that. A lot of fun. And uh, Phoenix this past weekend was pretty interesting as well, so we got a lot to cover.
2: Yeah, let's talk about Phoenix. Uh, Kyle Busch had his 199th career NASCAR National Series win. Uh, holding off a late charge from Martin Turex Jr. Bush uh, pretty much dominated with 177 of the 312 laps, uh, with Ryan Blaney leading 94 laps as the second dominator of a two-dominator race. Uh, Based on the positive responses on Twitter, uh, it sounds like a lot of the uh, listeners of the content had a strong day. Can you talk about the race, the DFS results, and uh, any lessons we can take away from Phoenix? Sure. So,
0: um, yeah, first of all, it was a two-dominator race, as you mentioned, which was kind of interesting because we had been talking all season about how the the dominator points had been a little more spread out than normal. Um, But, of course, we had Daytona and then two one-and-a-half-mile ovals. We hadn't gone to the 750-horsepower high downforce uh, package at a flat, small flat track. And as I thought, we actually would see fewer dominators because – you know, we, we talked about how track position was going to be so important. It absolutely was track position was incredibly important. If you were able to get out front, you didn't really sink through the field a whole lot. Um, even taking, you know, tires did matter. They certainly mattered, but you didn't like sink all the way to the back of the field or anything like that. And if you're on the same tire strategy as somebody, it was really easy to just kind of hold your position there. Uh, so, um, two dominator race, which is, is pretty notable given that, uh, It is fewer than the typical three dominators we had seen in the past at Phoenix. Uh, It was mostly threes with some twos. This was definitely a two-dominator race. Almirola did lead uh, 20-something laps, but that's not enough at Phoenix to be considered a dominator. Uh, You know, it's only five DraftKings, six DraftKings points in that neighborhood there. So um, two-dominator race. Uh, I thought it was a really interesting race because it came down to a little bit of fuel strategy at the end. Martin Truex Jr. had enough fuel to run – uh, a lot harder laps than Kyle Busch there at the end, and Kyle Busch had built like a six-second lead over Trudex and it kind of whittled its way down to about a second, a second and a half there at the end, but not enough time for Trudex to catch Kyle Busch. And, and Kyle Busch definitely had the best car this weekend, so uh, I think it was, you know, the rightful winner. Uh, one of the other cool things about, you know, Kyle Busch's win, as we talked about, 199th career win between the Cup, the Xfinity, and the Truck series. That puts him one shy of 200, which, of course, is the number that Richard Petty won in his career. So uh, there's a big debate on how do you compare Kyle Busch, uh, his 199 wins or eventually 200 wins to Richard Petty's 200 wins, which all came at the the top level but way back in the day. So big old debate there. I don't really want to get into that because it's certainly out of uh, the scope of, of Fantasy NASCAR. But I do think it is interesting talk for the NASCAR community uh, as far as the DFS results, I thought it was a fantastic race weekend. Um, a lot of the people who listened to RotoViz live or you know, the live show on Sunday morning got treated to a a thought process pick where we kind of went through the things. You know, I was talking about how David Reagan and Michael McDowell might be okay for cash games, and we kind of talked through it a little bit more. And uh, this was one of the picks I just kind of talked myself into during during the live show was Matt Tift. And the more, him, the more I looked at him, the more I looked at him, the more I looked at him, the more I liked him than Reagan or McDowell. And he was lower owned than both of them and ended up having a better day, a better DFS day than both of them quite easily. And so Matt Tift was only eight and a half percent owned. And uh, ended up in the winning lineup, so that was really cool. A lot of people had Matt Tift. I was recommending, you know, splitting your dominator exposure between combinations of, like, uh, Harvick and Keslowski, Harvick and Blaney, or Kyle Busch and Keslowski, or Kyle Busch and Blaney as my four top recommended combinations. And it ended up being the Kyle Busch and Ryan Blaney combo that ended up dominating. Um, So it was a really good weekend uh, as far as DFS. The other interesting thing, though, is the incident rate (laughs) technically will only go down – as four out of 36 cars, but there were more incidents than that, uh, just because of the way incident rate is calculated. Um, You know, Eric Jones blew a tire and had an incident really early in the race, but he ran the whole rest of the race and finished few enough laps down and ahead of other drivers that were running with no incident that his didn't get counted as a major incident. So, um, you know, we always call it a major incident rate instead of just the incident rate so that uh, we can kind of separate those Eric Jones cases from something where, you know, he was 20 laps down or 40 laps down and uh, out of contention completely. Now, of course, he was out of contention still, but, uh, um, you know, at least he finished ahead of some of the backmarkers that were still running. So um, there was a lot of incidents, but the incident The major incident rate was low, even though there was a lot of cautions, and a lot of that did come from tire issues, as we expected. So, uh, you know, kind of the race oddly played out just like we expected, and, and, you know, as we hypothesized it could play out like on last weekend's podcast, and uh, so that was encouraging to see. We kind of nailed that – the way that race played out after – you know, having good picks for both Atlanta and Las Vegas, but not necessarily nailing the way the race played out. I think Phoenix was just the smash weekend, uh, and uh, I think the you know the screenshots and everything that people were sending me showed it. So as far as lessons learned from Phoenix, I think the biggest lesson learned, of course, is that these short flat tracks. Uh, we've got one race under our belt now under this new package, very tough to pass. So I think that's just going to be uh, kind of the theme going forward. Is is um, you know we might need to adjust a little bit, our expectations for these races, um, you know, which were already track dependent, track position dependent, I think become even more track position dependent.
2: So moving from Phoenix to uh, Auto Club Speedway, we have a race this weekend in Fontana, California, 400 miles at the two mile D-shaped oval. uh, Like Atlanta, Fontana is known for its old racing surface, uh, producing high tire wear. Uh, but unlike Atlanta, the race at Auto Club will use air ducts, uh, which will create a larger wake behind the car, which will allow for a bigger draft. Uh, all of that said, what do you expect racing to be like this weekend at Auto Club Speedway?
0: You know, I actually have no idea what racing is going to be like this weekend. We, I, what, The two things I can say, just based off of what we saw in opening practice, is the speeds will be a lot slower. So, funny thing is in Phoenix, the speeds were higher, even though we had more downforce, and that's because you could carry more corner speed. But at a speed where aerodynamics really come into play, having that extra drag and that uh, extra downforce is actually a bad thing because um, it just hurts your straightaway speed so much. At a two-mile track, that straightaway speed is so important. So last year's opening practice, the fastest lap was 189 miles an hour. This year's opening practice, the fastest lap was 179 miles an hour. So a full 10 miles an hour is slower uh, or in terms of time on the track, that goes from a 38-second lap to a 40.1-second lap. So 2.1 seconds per lap, really if, if you use rounding it, but two two seconds per lap slower uh, this year than last year in opening practice. And that fastest practice time was set by Jimmy Johnson when he got a draft off of the car in front of him. I believe it was Ryan Blaney there. So uh, Jimmy Johnson putting up a 179-mile-an-hour lap with a draft, and that draft definitely was important so uh, we will see the draft come into play this weekend but of course tire wear still matters and the other thing that matters is this track is bigger than Atlanta um, so you know if we look for example at uh, the Atlanta practice speeds so I'm pulling that up right now but uh, Atlanta practice speeds were also right around 179 miles an hour in the opening session Uh, And then we were around 179 miles an hour in here. So I was a little surprised by that. But Atlanta also has more banking than auto clubs. So I think that makes up for it. So I think what we'll see in terms of tire wear is similar to what we saw in Atlanta because the speeds are relatively the same uh, that they will wear. But they won't wear as much as they've worn in the past. Um, What that will do is, of course, these cars will still be uh, all wild and crazy on these restarts, and especially at Auto Club, which is a really wide track. You're going to see four or five wide probably on some of these restarts. Maybe we even could see a six-wide restart at some point. But, uh, you know, I think these restarts are going to be insane. But then after, you know, 8, 10, 12, 15 laps, it's going to shake out to be just like every other, I think, Auto Club race where tire management and fuel strategy will come into play. And uh, you know, I think the better cars will still end up being out front. This is still a track that is a lot of horsepower required, a lot of aerodynamics required. So getting it right, uh, we'll still see a separation in speeds of these, you know, the the main pack of cars, I guess you could say, from these really back market cars. So uh we used to always talk about how Auto Club and Michigan really separated uh, you know, the good from the middle, from the the bad. Um, I think we'll still see some of that here, but I think the good in the middle could be a little more interspersed, but I think the bad are still going to be the bad, uh, so I still think we're going to have that Joder cheap tier be a really uh, just slow tier, and looking at the opening practice times, I think we've we've got that going, but uh, I actually think this race will mostly play out like Auto Club races of the past, however, uh, I think the the restarts will be a little bit crazier as they should be.
2: Nick, as you mentioned earlier, this is the first race with the aero at a high tire wear track. Uh, so how are you planning on evaluating driver performance?
0: Um, well, a couple ways. First, I do think Auto Club Speedway history is going to be very important um, because, like I said, I think most of this race is going to play out like Auto Club Speedway uh, from the past. The couple of questions I have are, as far as evaluating this, is because we're at a higher downforce level now, should we be evaluating this more like 2013 through 2015, when it was the higher downforce era of the Gen 6 car? Or should we be evaluating this more like 2016 through 2018, which is the lower downforce era of the Gen 6 car? Because if we do that, some different names pop up based off of, uh, you know, just some of the, the just track history uh, in terms of, you know, driver rating and finishing position and things like that. Very different names pop up. If we look, for example, 2016 to 2018, Kurt Busch, he looks just absolutely horrible. But then you look at 2013 to 2015, he was one of the best drivers at Auto Club Speedway, uh, second best behind only his brother, Kyle Busch there, over those that three-year span. So uh, I think the way we're just going to evaluate it is take this year's um, – results into account as well. We've had two races. We've had Atlanta. Well, obviously, we've had four, but we've had two that really matter. We've had Atlanta, which is high tire wear, just like Auto Club, but did not have the aero ducts. And then we had Las Vegas, which did have the aero ducts like Auto Club with this weekend, but it was lower tire wear. So I think you can use both Atlanta and Las Vegas in your evaluation process for this weekend And then if you look, uh, if so, I think all of you guys should be following PJ Walsh on Twitter, PJ Walsh 24 on Twitter. But he posted some uh, green flag running speeds when you combine Atlanta and Las Vegas. I think that will be very helpful to look at. And then I also think track history will be helpful to look at. And I'm really torn on what kind of track history will be useful. And I think part of that might be inferred from what happens on Saturday practice. Are we going to see Saturday practices uh, where the drivers that kind of look a little bit better are, are maybe the 16 to 18 drivers or, or the 13 to 15 drivers, because there's very different subsets of drivers based off of, um, you know, the, the, just both that three year span of 13 to 15 in the gen six car when it was higher downforce and then 16 to 18, when it was lower downforce, uh, like I said, just absolutely completely different subsets of drivers there. So I'm going to probably plan on using practice, uh, a whole lot in terms of my evaluation of drivers this weekend, because it's so interesting how the subset of really good drivers just flipped uh, from 13 to 15 to 16 to
2: 18. Nick, uh, speaking of driver performance, let's talk about how your finishing position model uh, did last week at Phoenix, and then uh, a sub question under this. Is there any way for the people who are uh, you know, degenerate enough to be betting on finishing position? Uh, is there any way that you can post some of uh, the findings of your model on the site, like in an article or a table that is sortable?
0: Absolutely. So um, obviously with the, the model itself, let's talk about its performance. It did it pretty well at Phoenix. So remember, I always evaluate the model on cars that were – Uh, did not have a major incident. So there were four cars that had a major incident, so I evaluate the 32 drivers that did not. The R-squared of that was 0.59, which is lower than past Phoenix races, but not too much lower. However, if you removed Eric Jones only, because we know he blew a tire really early in the race ended seven laps down, but technically didn't have a major incident, then the R-squared jumps to 0.66, which is actually a little bit higher than the past running average uh, since... of Phoenix over over the Gen 6 era. So it's tough to say. I mean, um, I would probably just call this in the general range of what we've seen in Phoenix in the past. So um, not more predictive like we had seen at Atlanta and at Las Vegas so far this year, but uh, about the same predictability. But what we, what we haven't seen this year is something be wildly less predictable yet. Uh, and so I think that's important to note. You know, last weekend at the beginning of the podcast, we talked about how do you evaluate the trends on this year? And I think we decided like let's look at the past three or the past six years of of certain tracks and then compare it to the what we've seen this year from the track. Now we have three data points to do that with, and we haven't seen any you know significantly lower predictability in any of these any of these races under these new aerodynamics. So, um, you know that was that was the performance this past weekend, and then absolutely. So what uh, as far as the projections itself go, I'm just uh, uploading the. DraftKings points projections into the optimizer but what i can do is release a table um maybe i'll release the table on twitter or i can just show the whole table on um my live show or something like that but we'll figure out a way to release the table so that you have finishing position for your finishing position prop bets as well uh and also of course the sim scores are really helpful in those as well
2: okay Good, because I need those I, I definitely I definitely need me some of those finishing uh, position projections that you have um, what data are you using to build the model this weekend for Auto Club
0: yeah because I can't really decide on which subset of data the 13 to 15 or the 16 to 18 subset of data makes more sense for this weekend uh I'm just using all of it and then I'm also including the 2019 uh first two races on the large ovals that would be Atlanta and Las Vegas so that's under the current rules package so uh it's just the Auto Club races since in the Gen 6 era plus Atlanta and Las Vegas from this year so that I think that makes the most sense um you get a really interesting idea of of the possibilities that you know that could happen over those uh I I think three different subsets you know if you take the first subset and the second subset of auto club and then the subset of this year's race those three i think mixed together will give you a nice blend of of uh, races to pick and choose from
1: love a good deal sale into the season at banana republic factory's mega labor day sale entire store 50 to 70% off dresses from 1999 polos from 1699 find your nearest store or shop online only at banana republic factory love a good deal sail into the season at banana republic Factory's mega labor day sale entire store 50 to 70 percent off dresses from 1999 polos from 1699 find your nearest store or shop online only at banana republic factory
2: okay so with that subset i should say i think it makes sense um to include all of 2000 and uh you know 2013 to 2018 and that was actually going to be a, a question i had um Like, why not just kind of do all of it since you're unsure, but, uh, you answered that question. It Um, was
0: interesting. uh, Sorry to jump in here, but it was interesting with Phoenix because most of the drivers that were really good on the higher downforce at Phoenix, you know, the 13 to 15 era did really well. So you looked at guys like uh, Jimmy Johnson, for example, had a very strong race, uh, until I think he had some issues there at the end, which were out of his control. But uh, you know, Jimmy Johnson was running really strong. A couple of the other guys uh, were running really strong, and and I was super excited about Brad Keselowski looked good early until uh, he blew a tire, but um, no, it was very early in the race as well. But uh, I thought it was very interesting that, it for Phoenix at least, the higher downforce drivers did seem to actually perform a little bit better than uh, you know maybe they had been in recent years at Phoenix. Now, it wasn't drastically different. I still used, um, you know, the model, and then just kind of tweaked the the higher force drivers up a little bit in my brain as far as my process went. So, um, you know, I think I ended up with like a lot of uh, in terms of like my my favorite kinds of lineups that I was just building. I didn't play, but in terms of the lineups I was just like toying around with um, for for the live show, I really ended up with a lot of Johnson, a lot of Brad Keselowski, which didn't work out so great, but you know, at least. Uh, uh, obviously with the tire issue there was out of his control, but I certainly ended up with some guys that, uh, you know, I think performed pretty well relative to how they'd been performing well at Phoenix in the past. But now with auto club, a little bit different beast here because it's just a totally different situation. I honestly have no idea whether we should be using the higher or the lower. So just use them both. And then, uh, like I said, throw in, um, throw in this year's stuff. So go ahead with your, your question there.
2: Yeah. So within that, uh, that data set that we're using, what are the, the factors, whether it's, you know, like 10 lap averages or whatever, what are the factors that you were looking at to build the model?
0: Certainly. So 10 lap average is, is pretty important this weekend. Uh, the one thing I will caution is because it is a two mile track, it takes a long time to make a 10 lap run, uh, compared to a one mile track. So, Uh, Not as many drivers run 10-lap averages at Auto Club Speedway, so in that absence of 10-lap data, uh, this is something we've done a lot. We use the combined practice speed, which is literally just taking the best single-lap speed from each car, averaging them, and then ranking those averages of single-lap speed from each practice. So there's three practice sessions. You take the top speed from each practice session for each driver, average them over those three and then rank that average, and that's your combined average. And it's it's definitely not as good, but at least it gives you some idea of where they fast over short runs consistently type thing. Um, and so that is what I've been using. I think that could be less reliable this year just because of the draft, the nature of how the draft is going to be so much more important this year. Doing that in practice could really throw off those numbers, so I really want to rely more on 10-lap data than I do on that this year but that is what pops up in the model. Um, track history uh, pops out, especially large ovals, so the track type history, and I think part of that is just the fact that we get so much separation of speed at these two-mile tracks that overall just large oval history really matters. So not just the two miles of Michigan and Auto Club, but all of the large ovals uh, together seem to matter. I think that gives you a really good idea of you know, which of these teams are much better with the aerodynamics and making the horsepower and all of that stuff. So. Uh, Track-type history, especially driver rating, comes into play. And then um, there is a little bit of track history. Uh, certainly at Auto Club, there's there's some track history with drivers like Kyle Larson, Martin Truex Jr., that in the 16-18 era has been pretty predictive. But in the 13-15 to 15 era... Uh, You know, if you use that track history to predict their their 2016 finishing position, it wouldn't have been so good. So because I'm using the larger data set, the track history actually becomes reduced a little bit. and It's more track type history. So I think we can still place an emphasis on track history. And uh, especially with the uh, but I especially think type history will be most important, especially adding in the 2019 data with the large ovals, uh, bringing in Atlanta and Las Vegas from 2019. That makes it even more large oval oriented instead of just specifically track oriented.
2: And how accurate is the model on uh, out of sample data?
0: Yeah, so if we just remove a random set of drivers and then, uh, you know, build the model and test it on that that random sample of removed drivers, it's right around 0.58, uh, so basically what we saw this past weekend at Phoenix in terms of the actual result, um, but it's around 0.58, and I actually think that's, that's higher than it's been in the past, and that's because last year's race was a little more predictable than normal, so I think in the past it's been around 0.54, 0.53, um, but last year's race was... A little more predictable than normal, uh, especially because, you know, Kevin Harvick wrecked right at the beginning, and that was basically the only incident for the whole race. So uh, fewer incidents tends to make it a little more predictable. And that, again, just like we saw uh, in the first race and uh, first two races in the large ovals, Vegas and Atlanta, low incident rates, uh, Phoenix saw a higher incident rate than in the past, you know, in terms of number of cautions. Now, not in terms of the major incident rate, but I talked about there was a lot of blown tires from drivers that still ended up continuing in the race. Eric Jones Uh, Brad Keselowski, I think, uh, you know, William Byron at one point had an issue or something like that. So, uh, still a lot of, a lot of incidents at Phoenix, a lot of cautions, and that certainly created a bit of extra randomness in the final R squared. So overall in auto club speedway, um, it's around 0.58 since 2013 plus adding in this year's data, which has been more predictable as well, brings it up to around 0.58 from a past of around 0.53. 0.54.
2: NASCAR has introduced a new rule uh, during qualifying that the pit road speed that is used during the race will also be used during qualifying sessions. Uh, Does that have any impact on qualifying?
0: Um, I think it could. And so obviously we're recording this just before qualifying is about to take place. But, um, uh, you know, if we look at the Las Vegas qualifying where they had these aeroducts and the draft played such a huge role in that qualifying session – We saw some drivers just, like, sitting on pit road. They were parked, and then other drivers just, like, gunned it off pit road, and you had two drivers come in full speed. Uh, What I was envisioning was you had two drivers come in full speed trying to fit in the same hole between two parked cars and just creating a calamity on pit road of of drivers going over 100 miles an hour, slamming into drivers at a dead stop. Thankfully, NASCAR realized that was probably a big problem as well, and they implemented this rule that you have to stay – pit road speed on pit road during qualifying as well if you don't and it's before your laps are on the track they won't score your laps until you come back in the pit road pass through at pit road speed then you can go back out if you make your lap if you're fine on pit road then you go make your laps you run some laps and then you speed coming back on the pit road they'll negate the laps you had done previously so um i think that could be an Impactful because I'm sure at some point we will see a speeding penalty and maybe even in some races, multiple speeding penalties. I don't know when that'll be, but teams will always try to push it because they want to qualify as far forward as they can, because qualifying still is is important. It's good to be out in front, uh, especially on these restarts as, as crazy as it could be at Auto Club. Uh, so, you know, I think it, it it could matter certain weekends, maybe more than others, that they'll want that track position and qualifying, and you'll see teams pushing the limit, trying to go pit road speed, and a couple of them will go over, and then you'll see drivers like, I don't know, I'm just picking names out there, you know, like Clint Boyer or Kyle Larson or uh, Denny Hamlin starting in the rear, and that will make for interesting race, type, race day decisions, because those will be pretty chalky drivers, so... Um, I do think it could have an impact on qualifying going forward and on DFS plays going forward as well. So that's something we're going to have to keep an eye on. Um, It could just be that maybe they all just obey the rules. But, you know, given the number of speeding penalties we see even under caution during a race, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a couple during qualifying as well.
2: So uh, a question on this: This is a rule that is starting just this weekend, or is it something that's been in effect previously?
0: Yeah, just this weekend, and right. I think that's yeah. because of what we saw at Las Vegas, which honestly was a little scary at times. I thought, you know, we could we could definitely see a driver maybe just plow into the back of another driver when because. Uh, there there's the game within the game of, of qualifying when the draft is so important. You don't want to be the first car off pit road. So a lot of drivers were pulling up to the front of pit road and then parking their car and then kind of inching them forward and then stopping. And then it was like, who's going to be the first off. But then when you go, You want to have as much speed as possible to build up that speed for your actual qualifying lap and uh, to keep with the draft and everything. So they're gunning it on pit road while other cars are stopped waiting to make sure they're not the first car off pit road. So it could have just turned into a big old mess, and uh, I'm glad NASCAR implemented this new rule. I think it is much better for the safety, and I still think it will make for a more fun qualifying session because – uh, the draft is still going to be important. The group qualifying is going to make it more more exciting than single car formats for sure. And there's still going to be the game within the game of qualifying, of trying to get into the draft and all that. But you're not going to have the unsafety aspect of of you know a car coming 120 miles an hour, slamming into a car that's perfectly stopped. Now it's reduced down to 55 or 60 miles an hour or even 45, depending on the track.
2: All right, let's talk about Dominators. Uh, with only 200 laps at Auto Club, this is... The race with the fewest number of laps since the Daytona 500, which also had 200. Before we talk about Dominator strategy, uh, let's get some background on Dominators at Auto Club Speedway. Typically, how many Dominators do we see?
0: So Auto Club is typically a two-Dominator race. There is a major Dominator and then a minor Dominator. So if we look, for example, in 2018, you had Truex leading 125 and Kyle Busch leading 62. Uh, you go 2017, it was Larson and Truex leading 110 and 73. Uh, 2016, it was really only one Dominator because the minor Dominator points were split between Jimmy Johnson and Martin Truex Jr., so that that kind of negated each of them being the next minor Dominator. They both led around 20 laps, which just isn't enough. It's only five Dominator points. Um, so it was really only one Dominator race. Uh, skipping 2015 for a minute, for a reason, 2014, it was basically just one major dominator. You could kind of say a second minor dominator in Brad Keselowski's 38 laps led, but he didn't really have any fastest laps. Um, Jeff Gordon had 23 laps led with 50 fastest laps. So you could kind of say maybe he was a second minor dominator. And then 2013, again, a major and a minor dominator there with Kyle Busch and Joey Logano. So, uh, 2015 was kind of the exception. That was the, the last year of the higher downforce era. Uh, that was Kurt Busch, leading 65, Denny Hamlin leading 56, Matt Kenseth leading 43, and Kevin Harvick leading 34. So all of them leading at least 16% of the race, 34 laps, and all of them getting at least 13 uh, fastest laps, which actually the guy who had the the fewest of those four in terms of laps led, Kevin Harvick, had the second most fastest lap. So they all had pretty equal dominator points. Actually, Matt Kenseth had the fewest, but he still had 43 laps led and 13 fastest laps. So that one was pretty spread out, seems to be the exception to the rule of mostly two dominators, you know, a major and a minor dominator, uh, with occasionally the minor dominator points actually getting split up and really only producing one major dominator. So I would mostly say this race in the past is is averaged a two-dominator race.
2: And given the new uh, aerodynamic package, plus the increased number of leaders we've seen at the large ovals this year, uh, do you expect dominator points to be more? to be more widespread than, uh, in the past races at this track? I think, I definitely think there's the possibility of that, especially in fastest laps with the draft. Um, I definitely
0: think the fastest laps could be a little more spread out on restarts. Now, obviously that's restarts, um, but clean air will still be King. Um, and, uh, you know, I, 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 think there's the possibility of a little bit more spread in Uh, You know, fastest laps points. And that also does just happen at higher tire wear tracks. You get somebody who gets off sequence, gets new tires, and they can knock down five or eight, you know, fastest laps when the other drivers are on older tires. So you'll definitely see some spread in fastest laps. In terms of laps led, I do think it's a little more likely we could see maybe like one major dominator and then have the minor dominator points be split up. Um so I actually think it makes it less likely that there's two, but more likely that there's one or three. You know, if the if it gets split up between the major dominator, then there could be three kind of medium-ish dominators. But if it gets split up between the minor dominators, we could see something like in the past where we saw in twenty sixteen where Harvick leads a bunch Um, or a driver leads a bunch and then the minor dominators all get split up. So I actually think it makes it less likely to be two, but more likely to be one or three dominators. So uh, I think it actually just kind of flattens the distribution out a little bit more rather than making it kind of tall towards two and a little bit spread out towards one or three. It's more flat between one, two, and three. So um, I think there's the potential for more spread and I also think there's the, the potential for more spread actually even makes it more likely that we could only just see one dominator because the dominator points that would normally go to the second are more spread out. So kind of a weird answer, but I definitely think it could change the, the long-term average distribution, uh, not necessarily – sorry, not, not the long-term average uh, overall, but the long-term distribution, the shape of that distribution, I think it make it more spread out. So kind of change the standard deviation more so than the average number of dominators.
2: That makes sense. Um, Given the possibility for more uh, widespread dominator points, what is your approach to dominators this weekend? And I should say we are recording this before qualifying and before Saturday practice.
0: Yeah. So without
2: having seen practice
0: and and if I think, you know, the draft will be a huge role in passing the leader or anything like that. um, Again, given that we're kind of at our fifth different situation in five races this week, this year, um, I do think, uh that what I'll be doing is I'll be probably de-emphasizing dominators with the exception of I'm sure I'll want at least one, right? So I'll want at least one. And then from there, I think I'm just going to pick rosters that make sense, whether I think they can dominate or not. I just want drivers that are going to finish really high. If they finish really high, they also have a chance of dominating. So I am gonna be targeting at least one dominator in every lineup. And then I'm just going to be targeting probably a couple drivers that I think have a really good shot to finish in the top two or three, which could lead them dominating as well. So they're dominator candidates, but I don't necessarily know if you'd call them a dominator, but, but you get the idea. I'm definitely targeting one dominator per lineup. And then the rest, I want to target at least two or three drivers outside of that one dominator that I think I have a really good chance of finishing very high and then, of course, rounding out the rest of my lineup with the combination of place differential and finishing position for the cheaper drivers.
1: Grocery Outlet Bargain Market is your headquarters for huge Labor Day savings. This week, stock up on Frito-Lay party-sized chips. 10.5 to 20-ounce assorted varieties are buy two, get one free. That's a wow savings of up to
0: 50% versus traditional grocery stores. Limit three free. Also, get the grill fired up with Nathan's Famous Beef Franks. 10 to 12-ounce assorted varieties are just $2.99. That's a wow savings of up to 57%. Offers good through September 3rd. Grocery
2: Outlet Bargain Market let's talk about some drivers in particular based off the factors in your model. uh, Who are the guys at the top uh, of your model or, or uh, the guys uh, who are your top plays relative to their salary heading into the weekend?
0: Yeah. So um, I think this is a bit of an interesting question because again, we want to, you know, do we want to base everything off of the past three years? Do we want to base everything off of 13 through 15? Do we want to, you know, do the combined thing? So obviously, just based off the model is going to be different than if we just look at even more recent history. Um, but uh, but even if we look at the the combined from all the way from uh, you know 2013. Now Kyle Larson was a rookie um, it was several years ago, so he didn't race in 2013, for example. But he still pops out way up there uh, when you when you take in the whole 2013 through 2018 plus this year's 2019 range, uh, especially at Atlanta, which was the the uh, high tire wear track there. Kyle Larson did really well. Kyle Larson definitely pops out and he's fourth in salary this weekend, but he pops out as a top two or three driver. So 10800 really like Kyle Larson this weekend uh, and has won at this track before. Uh, Another name that I think is important (laughs) to mention is Martin Truex Jr. He's sixth in salary, which seems so strange to me because he almost won at Atlanta. He almost won last weekend at Phoenix, a different kind of track. He's got an awesome recent track history. If we just take the 16 through 18 subset, he has the second highest driver rating to only Kyle Larson. If we also remove DNFs Um, and actually including DNFs, Truex uh, is the highest because Larson had a DNF in one of those races. Uh, And Truex has led 36% of the laps on average at Auto Club over the past three years. So why he's priced even lower than Kyle Larson this year or this particular weekend Really confuses me. So Trux and Larson of that like top tier of drivers definitely stand out. Um, then kind of going down the list, uh, Eric Jones, I think, is another one that we should mention. Um, you know, even including DNFs, uh, he's got a 100.9 driver rating. So that puts him uh, with DNFs, that puts him fourth. Without DNFs, that puts him fifth. And Eric Jones is priced down there uh, at $8,200. So, um, you know, Eric Jones has has been uh, maybe a little bit under the radar, I guess, this year. So if we just look at, you know, Atlanta and Las Vegas this year for Eric Jones, um, he's performed pretty well. But for some reason, he's just not getting the attention. So Eric Jones this year, uh, 85 driver rating, average finish of 10th over those races there. So, um, you know, I think I think he's a driver that you can bump up given his auto club history as well. So. Uh, you know, I think, I think my favorite drivers this weekend certainly come up at the top with Larson and Truex, even though, you know, we could take longer term history, but let, let, let's real quick, let's look at longer term history, because I wanted to uh, mention the drivers that pop out for the higher downforce era, because, you know, there might be some lineups you want to go. And I actually think this is a cool strategy this weekend. You could play some more recent history, the 16 to 18 lineups. You could play some 13 to 15 type lineups, and you could play some lineups that are a blend of you know, the whole thing plus this year, all of that kind of stuff. But if we look at the 13 to 15 history, Kyle Busch, number one driver, uh, average finish of 1.0 <laughs> from 13 to 15 when you remove DNFs, if I include DNFs, uh, average finish of 1.0. So Kyle Busch has won every race at Auto Club during those years uh, of the higher downforce era. So he might be the driver to beat this weekend, and uh, he is priced number one at 12.6. But second is Kurt Busch. An average finish of 3.7 and also no DNFs over that time span, 111.8 driver rating. So Kurt Busch priced at 9,100. He's performed pretty well this year. But if it's more like, you know, uh, those past years, plus we also add in this year's Las Vegas and Atlanta, which Kurt Busch had top five finishes at both. I think Kurt Busch is a super sneaky play if you're only looking at 16 through 18 history because let's look at 16 through 18 auto club history. This is what I mean by how it's like really flip-flopped between the downforce levels. Kurt Busch's driver rating in the 16 to 18 era at auto club is 59.5 with an average running position of 23rd and an average finish of 23rd. That's horrible, and that includes DNS. But even removing DNS, it's the exact same. None of those were DNS. So, uh, you know, Kurt Bush twenty thirteen to twenty fifteen, and twenty sixteen to twenty eighteen, is a total divergence in what he has done there. And we see this with a few drivers. Brad Keselowski, not as strong uh, in, in you know one of this in the uh, in the um older split versus the newer split, you know, Denny Hamlin really pops out in 15 to 13, but drops a little in 16 to 18, although not that much. Um, but, but there are certainly some drivers, Kevin Harvick, for example, uh, 16 to 18 does not look as good as, uh, 13 to 15. So it's just, it's just really weird. Jimmy Johnson, another driver, um, 13 to 15, much better than 16 to 18. So, what I think the strategy kind of could be this weekend in terms of, of drivers, and I've, I've mentioned a lot of drivers I think are really good relative to their salary, but it depends on the subset of data you're looking at, um, is, is how you think the race is going to be play out more. But again, just looking at 13-18, and uh, overall, I think Larson, Truex, and Eric Jones are probably the three best values.
2: I have a follow-up question on Kurt Busch. So I think when the season started, uh, obviously he moved to a new team, I would say a lesser driving team. Um, So I think it was fairly easy to be uh, relatively down on him. Um, But now that we, and especially since uh, there was a lot of uncertainty about the new aerodynamic package, but now that we have actually seen him race with the new team, with the new package, um, do you think that? Like, I guess, how much how much sense does it make to kind of adjust him back up into your just like mental power rankings of drivers?
0: That's a really good question. And, um, you know, I I think the first way to answer that is, um, you know, Ganassi Racing, the team that he went to, certainly is a step down from what Stuart Haas Racing has done in the past. Uh, but they're not a massive step down, right? Kyle Larson is still winning races, uh, dominating a lot of races, even when he doesn't win. I think there's a crazy stat with Larson where like seven of the last eight races he led the most laps he hasn't won or something like that. Uh, But, uh, you know, it's still a very good team in Ganassi Racing. I'd argue maybe the best Chevy team, uh, better than the Hendrick team. We always think of Hendrick as the dominant Chevy team, but I actually think Ganassi Racing probably has the best team and uh, Chevy team. So, you know, it's certainly maybe a minor step down, but uh, I wouldn't say it's a major step down. And then we look at what he's done this year. Uh, so if we, if we just look at Kurt Busch, the Daytona 500 is the Daytona 500. It is what it is. But, um, you know, he's had two top fives, which both came at the large ovals, three top tens, which, uh, of course, was a seventh place at Phoenix as well. So in the non-restrictor play races, the ones where the big ones didn't really come into play, Kurt Busch has had three top seven finishes. So... I think the mental evaluation on Kurt Busch has to be he still is capable of putting up pretty much what he did last year. I mean, last year he wasn't really a dominant threat to win. He had a couple races. He was certainly a threat to win in that Stuart Haas car, and he did win a race. Uh, and then he was led most of the race at Talladega, and I think there was a couple of the races he, you know, maybe was the minor dominator in. But uh, you know, this year we haven't really seen him be a major dominator, but we've seen him be a minor dominator and definitely get multiple top seven finishes. So I think he is a really nice play this weekend, especially because he's priced up at 9,100. I think people could look dropping down more towards Eric Jones, Ryan Blaney at 84 and 8,200, Jimmy Johnson at 7,800, especially after that, uh, you know, that strong showing last weekend uh, with that eighth place finish there. So, um, you know, uh, recency bias is a real thing. I think people are more friendly towards Jimmy Johnson now, but uh, I'm a little more bearish on Jimmy Johnson, just from what we've seen this year. If, uh, again, referencing PJ Walsh's tweet Johnson ranks 23rd in green lap speed on those large ovals this year, uh, between you know, Las Vegas and Atlanta. So, uh, Kurt Busch, meanwhile, ranks sixth. So, I think, you, and, and Kurt Busch's teammate Kyle Larson ranks seventh. So, I think you can definitely use that as a notion that Kurt Busch is still Kurt Busch this year. Probably not a major drop off from last year at all.
2: All right, uh, let's talk about Joe Dirt cheap drivers. Um, you mentioned earlier that because this is a two mile oval, uh, we tend to get, uh, a greater difference between the cars at the front and the cars in the back. So, uh, are any of these Joder cheap drivers even viable this weekend?
0: Yeah. And and before we jump into the Joder cheaps, um, I just want to talk about a couple drivers that I think might be a little bit overvalued. Um, first of course, I still think is Jimmy Johnson. He could be a little bit overvalued, uh, just based off what he's done this year, it's not it's not been so great. And uh, if we look at Auto Club Speedway, the kind of the longer history here with Jimmy Johnson, he actually is pretty good. Uh, but uh, I think people will – I think that could inflate his ownership. But just looking at what he's done this year, I'm not super high on those Hendrick cars. Also, he had a super fast car in opening practice, but he got that big draft. So if Jimmy Johnson's ownership is going to be inflated, I like being a little underweight on him. But just also drivers that I think could be overpriced. Um, maybe somebody like Daniel Suarez average driver rating of 68.8, uh, which is way down there in the back half of the, the teams there. So, um, not very good. And Daniel Suarez is actually priced above Jimmy Johnson this weekend, right. And just below Eric Jones there. So you look at Eric Jones and, and Daniel Suarez polar opposites, right? I mean, Daniel Suarez, 68.8 driver rating, Eric Jones, hundred point nine driver rating, and they're, they're 200 bucks apart on DraftKings. So essentially the same price. Um, and they just have nowhere near comparable performances and they were both on Joe Gibbs racing for those uh two years that they've been in the big leagues so um uh, it's a small sample size but then you add in performance this year as well Daniel Suarez on the large ovals just uh you know hasn't quite gotten it done so you know I think the nod in those two goes to Eric Jones so I think a couple of overpriced drivers are actually in that price range right there in terms of Daniel Suarez and Eric Jones, or sorry, and Jimmy Johnson. So um, those two drivers are drivers to be aware of. Getting back to your joder cheap question, I think it's going to be pretty hard to play the Jodert cheap drivers because a couple reasons. One, we could see more spread on the Dominator points. So you know, if we see three major Dominators, um, you know, uh, it reduces the the need for having all three of them in your lineup. Now you probably still want all three of them, but probably means one of those dominators is a guy that was eight or nine or 10, low $10,000. It still could be Kyle Busch or Kevin Harvick is one of them, which means you probably need to grab a Joe Dirt driver, but there could also just be like, you know, Truex who's 10 K leads 80% of the race or 55% of the race. And there's a minor dominator like, uh, you know, Larson or something. And then you're able to play a more balanced approach. And because these Joe Dirt cheap drivers are just so darn slow, I mean, they are they are bad slow. Um, it, it, it's not even close. Let me let me just go through these bottom five drivers: Cody Ware, Garrett Smithley, Reed Sorensen, Joey Gase, and B.J. McLeod. All of them were at least 0.8 seconds slower than the driver before them, or before Cody Ware in 34th, which is Ross Chastain. And we're not, you know, saying Ross Chastain is knocking down the doors off of off of everything either. Uh, and then. Um, you know, Ross Chastain and Matt Tift were were half a second slower almost than Bubba Wallace and, and Landon Castle. And so, you know, I think once you get into that Bubba Wallace, Landon Castle, Corey LaJoy range, you're kind of able to keep towards the end of, of you know all those extra drivers. You know, those, uh, it, it starts to become more of a pack. You know, if, if it was, a, if it was let's say it was a restricted play race, it would be a pack you could keep up with. But those bottom five, Ware, Smithley, Sorensen, Gase, and McLeod, Uh, which are also, of course, the bottom five price drivers on DraftKings, are just abysmal in terms of their speed. Uh, And they can't even keep up with Ross Chastain, which is scary. So if you can't even keep up with Ross Chastain, uh, you probably don't deserve to be in a lineup unless it's like, I think it's going to be a three-dominator lineup. All three of these dominators are going to uh, be in the winning lineup because they're all going to finish high as well. And I just need some salary relief somewhere. But I think that's the only way you're playing any of these bottom five drivers.
2: All right. Let's talk about GPP strategy uh, heading into the weekend. Obviously, again, recording this before qualifying, before practice, but kind of big picture strategy for tournaments. What are your thoughts?
0: Yeah. So I mentioned a little bit of it, but, but I think we can combine, you know, the, the avoiding the Joe dirt cheap stuff with some of the other things we talked about building lineups that make sense from 13 to 15, building lineups that make sense from 16 to 18, building lineups that take into account first two races this year, um, building lineups that take all of that into account. And if you're multi-entering, you can, you can take some of those approaches. Now, maybe we tweak that strategy based off of what we see in practice or something like that. But, uh, I, I just think because there's, such a big, drastic difference in the, you know, the 13 to 15 versus the 16 to 18 splits um, for Auto Club that, uh, you know, it, it really makes it a tough situation to gauge this weekend. So um, I like I like more balanced approaches. I like one dominator or, you know, just well, like I said, one dominator and then picking two two other drivers that have a chance of really, really finishing high, which means they could also dominate. Um, and kind of using that approach and then filling out the rest of my lineup as balanced as I can. So the best combination of place, differential, and finishing position. Sure, you might have to drop down to the bottom five once in a blue moon, uh, which I happen to have a blue moon in my hand right now. But uh, once in a blue moon, you can you can drop down to one of these bottom five drivers, but I wouldn't put you know much stock in the maybe not even like one out of every ten lineups with one of these super back markers, right? Like my combined ownership percentage on those bottom five might – Might not even push 10%. It might be less than that. So um, really, I think it's a balanced approach, best combination of place differential and finishing position, emphasis on finishing position for sure, and uh, then trying to pick at least one dominator. And then from there, try to make some lineups that I think prominently feature 13 to 15 drivers. Prominently feature 16, 18 drivers. probably feature drivers have been better this year at the two large ovals. And then probably feature a blend of all of them. And I think, uh, you know, if you're multi-entering, let's say you make 20 lineups. And let's pretend, don't know, like I said, going into the weekend. Let's pretend that all four options were equally likely and you're playing 20 lineups. So that's five lineups of, of each strategy you could build. Um, now, obviously... Uh, we can probably whittle that down in practice to, to making a more precise distribution where we think one certain uh, situation may play out better than another in terms of 13-15 to or 16-18 or to or, or, or whatever. But, um, you know, at least that gives us kind of a, a starting point going into the weekend, evaluate practice, evaluate the drivers, and then we can kind of see which drivers make a lot of sense. So, like, again, looking back last weekend at Phoenix – just looking at guys like Keslowski and Johnson, even on the track, it was like, man, those higher downforce era guys really were making sense. Ryan Newman was another one. Really making a lot of sense, uh, and, and they all did really well. So um, I think we could see maybe practice could tip our hand in one direction or another this weekend as well.
2: Nick, uh, give us the outline for the content schedule this weekend. Yep, so – uh, apps will be updated
0: after final practice. i um, going to have the action network article out and, uh, yeah, I think, um, pretty much as normal. So let's see. The race is scheduled for 1230 Pacific, 330 Eastern. So we'll be doing road of his Live probably three and a half hours before, maybe three hours before, but uh, it'll probably be either noon or 1230 Eastern, which is nine or 9:30 Pacific in the morning on Sunday morning.
2: All right, Nick, thank you for all of that NASCAR insight. And uh again, I'm looking forward to seeing your models. Don't forget to uh, to post them somewhere on the site because I need them. Oh, we'll I, I we'll literally I literally need them. We'll
0: post it, don't worry.
2: Okay uh, that is going to do it for this NASCAR edition of On the Daily for Nick Iffen on Twitter at Rotodoc, I'm Matt Friedman, Matt F the Oracle. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>
1: Love a good deal? Sale into the season at Banana Republic Factory's Mega Labor Day Sale. Entire store 50 to 70% off. Dresses from 19.99, polos from 16.99. Find your nearest store or shop online only at Banana Republic Factory.
0: For the one standing guard, for the eagle eyed, for the knights in shining armor, and for all those who support them, we are Granger, your experienced safety partner, offering supplies and solutions for every industry. Committed to helping keep your facilities safe and your people safer, call clickgranger.com/safety or just stop by Granger for the ones who get it done.